everybody. Welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm the host, Spencer Martin, from the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. I'm with Andrew Vance from the Choose the Hard Way podcast. I did a like in-depth race breakdown of the World Championships on Monday or Tuesday, so you can go back to the last episode in the feed and listen to that if you really want to know exactly what happened before we go on our ramble through the fields that is cycling uh, content and conversation at the moment. Andrew, before we get started, do you want to talk about your Choose the Hard Way podcast to give it a little bit of a plug? For sure. Thanks, Spencer. Yeah, so Choose the Hard Way is a show where we explore how doing hard things builds stronger, happier people. I actually just saw an article in the Washington Post today about a new scientific study that validates just this idea that people really are happier and have more fun when they have the pleasure of having done difficult things. So if you're the kind of person who's interested in doing hard things and you want to hear from some of the world's most interesting people in a variety of different disciplines, whether it's big mountain ski, skiing, or um, business, venture capital, whatever the case may be, cycling journalism, we've had Spencer on, please come check us out. Show's called Choose the Hard Way. It's on every platform for where you listen. And you can also find us at choosethehardway.com and at Hardway Pod on social media. It's a great podcast. Can't recommend it enough. My next long haul flight, I'm going to load up a whole batch of them and just, and just go. Just let it roll. I'm, I'm excited for it. So, Andrew, World Championships was last weekend. It feels like a million years ago to me at this point. Um, I don't even remember where it was, who won. Uh, but Remco Evenepoel destroyed everybody. I think, let, do you want to say anything about the race itself? We have not spoken since the race happened. So lay it on me if you have anything. Uh, this is a really exciting moment. <clears throat> um, I think the big thing that's on my mind and the minds of a lot of people, how would this have played out if we'd had a fully stacked deck because so many people sat out worlds? Of course, rule number one of winning is you have to show up. So we can only uh, go with the talent that we had in the field that day. There, of course, is the question of why do we not have race radios at the world championships? Does it make the racing better or does it actually ruin the racing? And did the strongest rider win? I think we definitely saw the strongest rider win the world championships. I was I was pretty surprised. I mean, coming out of a three-week tour, typically a rider is quite fatigued and in need of some recovery. Not Remco Evenepoel, though. Yeah, I'm not a journalist, um, so I haven't checked this, but I heard this was the first time the person who won the Vuelta overall won Worlds, which makes sense, as you say. That would be hard to do, but the Vuelta did used to be a fertile training ground for Worlds. Usually up until five to seven years ago, the winner of Worlds almost always completed the Vuelta. So I, 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 I don't know. I guess bodies are, especially bodies of these super elite cyclists can just handle like so much more training than you would imagine. And also the, there was not a lot of like super long stages. And it's easy for me to say from the comfort of my home, not a lot of incredibly hard stages. So it was like shorter punchier racing it wasn't like a tour de france like we saw where it'd be like six hours all out stages so i think remco had a few things fell in his favor for him to be fresher at the start of this race your theory then spencer is that the vuelta was something of a recovery period for remco heading <laughs> yeah in, in yeah he was re recovering on on 
en route from its hard training camp before to to winning worlds. It was kind of a trash world. <laughs> now that it's in our rear view, I'm like, I will never rewatch one of these stages. I'm glad this is behind us. Interesting take. And I, you know, on that point of people treating the Vuelta as training for the world championships, I think definitely true for people targeting the world championships, but I would love to see a breakdown of what their performance was like during the actual Vuelta. I could see somebody potentially like nabbing a stage win and then kind of taking it easy the rest of the race in preparation for worlds, but certainly not someone who had a high workload throughout the three-week grand tour yeah high work yeah i yeah you're right that is the normal template but he's also sitting in wheels for a lot of that race i mean if you're think of like magnus court at the tour he's off the front all the time like that's a really really high workload remco is completing every stage with the gc group but you're in the wheels the whole time i actually would be curious like yeah what is the tss overlay between remco versus Jay Vine, who's trying to get in every breakaway on every stage. I'd be interested to see that. Yeah, we'll have to take a look at that breakdown. And one thing I was going to, yeah, so race radios. No race radios at Worlds or the Olympics. Why? Now that you mention it, I don't know if I even know the reason why. I think it's kind of fun just because it's so silly. And you get, you watch really, really professional and high end athletes completely break down and not know what to do so i find it kind of enjoyable if it was all the time maybe it wouldn't be so fun but um i kind of like it i think it it encourages attacking because you can get up the road and you're insulated from chaos because you're the rate like you're happening to the race if you sit back it's hard a lot harder to manage that without the radios spencer did you ever race with race radios think we yeah i was actually talking to jb hager from the move podcast about this recently who he got caught up in the same craze where like amateur teams got this idea that you needed race radios i think yeah it's like i'm embarrassed to admit i think we were like radio out at radioed out at one point they never really work and it's a maybe like a particular thing with midwest racing is the level is not super high like the physical effort you have to do to win races is not equal to um, like colorado or west coast or even like mid-atlantic on the east coast but the tactics are super complex and overly thought out in my opinion um so yeah you would get like teams out there with race radios and they'd be racing like really professionally um but i I think until recently that they often didn't work um there's a lot of problems They're, they're not very good to be honest with you even at the world tour level, it looks like no one has solved the problem of how to keep an earpiece in. They should just do a seven hour long like uh, group, like a FaceTime just on audio with like AirPods in. You're like, would that just work better? Well, to your point about there being a craze for using radios and amateur cycling, I raced at a much lower level than you on the road. But I do recall at one point being at a CBR criterium. And if you're listening and you're familiar with CBR criteriums, those are some of the like office park criteriums that the Williams brothers brought to great fame through their, uh, their GoPro footage. But I recall doing, you know, probably a cat four race and there were people in the race with race radios back in the early two thousands. So 
as go the pros, so go the rest. Yeah, it was this. Uh, I, it was a regrettable time for all of us. Something I saw happen, like rallies started doing this in like bigger crits. They would write instead of race radios that, and you could use this at Worlds because it's often a circuit. They just have a big whiteboard, and you write messages to people on that, and you hold it. As something I'll like never forget is there was a break two rally riders in it and you think like, well, that's good. They're, they're going to work in this break because they have two guys here. Um, the director holds up just like a question, like, can you win? You know? And if the answer is not like, yes, you got to stop working because you have a sprinter back in the field. So it's just this, I, I, I thought it was like a very crazy thing at the time. Like they're not going to work. Like we've got a gap here, but if they feel like there's a chance that they might get beat in the sprint, they're going to sit up and wait for their sprinter, which they did. And they won the race. So, um, and that is actually a better – I was surprised there wasn't more whiteboarding going on at these worlds because you are just going by the same area again and again. You could just be sending messages to your back to your team. You think maybe you don't even really need race radios on a circuit like that. Yeah, and was there not – there was not any chalkboard, whiteboard action going on on motorcycles or support I definitely vehicles saw it on motorcycles, like from okay. race – race employees um i didn't really see it from like team employees though it's so confusing what's permitted and what's not because i know that wout and a number of other writers you could see them on camera asking the camera person yeah for the splits and i again i need to dig into the uci rule book on this one but i'm wondering what forms of communication are forbidden because there are so many different ways you could work around this that seemingly none of the federations chose to uh chose to use but it seemed like the writers genuinely had no idea what the time gaps were everybody in the main group coming in after the win they had no idea what position they were sprinting for which is you know it's just like kind of blows boggles the mind and you're right like they could have had a whiteboard on the roadside somebody in a team car surely could have told them something if they were pulling up to you know, make a seat post adjustment or whatever the case may be. And I think that blimps are a highly underutilized technology. And you have to think that a a crafty federation might in the future make use of the Goodyear blimp. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if they have that. Uh, the Hindenburg, why not? He, or what was that hydrogen uh, balloons up in the air? What could go wrong? Um I, I could see how it'd be confusing in that finale because Evanapol is up the road with like a group of 20 riders. They start falling back to you and they were catching them like close to the finish. Uh, I, I would have been totally befuddled if I was them. And it could be hard to get messages back to them in time. I even wonder if like radios would have helped. As a viewer, I was kind of confused about where they were, what they were sprinting for. So the whole thing was was kind of a mess. I guess that's why you should always sprint like you're sprinting for the win, no matter where you are in the race. And you did see some like lackadaisical sprints. Like Wout Van Aert didn't really seem to contest the finish. I, I don't think he knew he was sprinting for the medals there. No, he said he didn't know. And we were, you know, we were, as you know, Spencer, we were exchanging some messages early on during the race. And when there was that initial group split into, I, I believe it was four different groups. Early on in the race, there were some pretty big time gaps. And unfortunately, as has been the case throughout the season, just the way that they are broadcasting these events, it's so difficult to be able to tell what's going on. I mean, when you had those 
that initial split into four groups, they weren't, they really weren't identifying any of the writers. I know that I was pinging you because there was an American writer proudly writing on a 2019 specialized tarmac SL six from what I could tell with rim brakes. I wanted to know the identity of that writer. And I believe you identified that as a writer from the front range. I don't think he's from the front range. I think the team is from the front range. It's like, okay. big, I stand corrected. I, I'm not sure where he, I think he's successful enough. He's just kind of a nomad. He's just on the move wherever the races are. Right. Scott, Scott McGill is these days. Scott McGill, he was out there tearing it up and they didn't identify any, but a handful of riders in that front group. And it, it's just difficult to follow, <laughs> to follow the race. It was the, really hard or even just, it was like over engineered almost just show me the front of the Peloton as it is breaking up, but they're like showing you close-ups of a group, but you're not sure what group you're seeing. If it's the breakaway or the Peloton or a group that's been dropped from the Peloton, it, I found it very confusing. It's also, we should note, this is like the UCI's race. Like they're the race organizer of worlds in the Olympics, but they don't like at the tour, it's ASO and like they're running the show and they're real pros or as close to pros as you get in cycling. And like at Jujiro, it's RCS who I would not say are pros and you, they often can't even get you the signal and you just have entire stages that aren't on television because of it. So I definitely felt like the UCI did not do a fantastic job of producing this uh, from a video perspective. Not the best viewing experience. Exciting race. One, and again, Spencer, I know that you covered this in the newsletter and that you did an episode earlier in the week, but let's talk for a second about what was going on with the German team. And have you heard anything behind the scenes about what happened? No. And I'm always like, worlds happens. I'm into it. And then I, I write the newsletter and then it's gone from my mind. Like I, I forgot to follow up with anyone. I'm like, what was going on with Germany? Um, I'm not quite sure why they were chasing. They, they were the reason the race came back together after it broke up earlier, as you said, uh, did a lot of work, just a ton of work. And, you know, maybe the theory is, Hey, we missed the move. So what are we going to do? Sit back here for, we flew all the way to Australia. We're going to sit here for 210 kilometers and let the race right up the road like we're here we might as well do something and they had one semi-fast rider whose name i do not remember i'm gonna look him up really quick and you know worlds is just crazy enough i mean who would have guessed christophe laporte wins out of that uh reduced group for second place so maybe the theory was you know we just do everything we can to get this gentleman whose name i'm still looking for get him to the finish line and maybe he can pull off like a surprise medal and that's a good race for us. I mean, that's the closest thing I could come up with. Did you have any theories? I, I didn't have any good theories. It didn't make a lot of sense to me. It, I almost wondered if there was some trade team related alliance or rationale for what happened there, because I didn't see any reason that they should be putting in the work when they did. I mean, I made a joke, I guess let's call it a joke that Remco Evenepoel was just paying the money to chase uh, create i mean i wouldn't even call that crazy but stuff like that does happen at worlds because i i think it's can be hard for so uh, now that i'm looking at their team they, they did have some decent sprinters like they have nicholas arndt who is a semi quick rider he can like win out of a tough group third at the 
Rundum Kohn, who uh, who amongst us did not watch that race and dream of doing that as a child. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they don't they didn't have any A-listers, but these riders don't really care about their country. Uh, this is more of a, a race for your you yourself. Um, if you're Belgium and if you're on the Belgian team, you want Evenepoel to win just, I guess, because of like personally that's satisfying to be like, wow, we did a good job as a team. But he's going to pay those guys a lot of money because um, he's going to get a big bonus for winning worlds from his team. And he's going to have to like share the love with his national team teammates. If you feel like your team leader doesn't have a chance to win, you could easily just start like create an alliance with a rider on another another team and then trust that either you're going to get a cash payment for that or maybe they'll hire you. Uh, maybe you're on, as we saw, uh, what's his name? Alexi Lusinko was up the road with Evanapol and his trade team teammate from Astana, who's from Italy, was on the front of the chase group and he just kind of sat up and let it go because he's not going to chase down his own trade teammate. You see a lot of cross alliances like that. It's not unusual or unheard of. One of the things I wanted to go back to were some comments that a beyond the Peloton favorite, Patrick Lefebvre, made prior to the Vuelta about Philippe, And he, of course, said, you know, I don't pay Julian Philippe to win world championships. My expectation is that if he's going to a stage race, we're going to see some action and I want to see some wins. I mean, what would have happened had Philippe stayed in the Vuelta and Remco, you know, doing what he turned out to do, taking the overall. Do you think Lefebvre really would have wanted Alaphilippe out there gunning for stage wins? That's a great question. Um, so Julian Alaphilippe, a little bit of background, won the last two world championships, participated here, didn't win, didn't make the front group. Um, I, I was actually pretty impressed with how he did, considering he's been in the hospital twice this year and was not in shape at the Vuelta. Um, he, he left the Vuelta. He looked pretty injured. Uh, I mean, if you watched that crash and watched him in the ambulance, I don't think it was possible for him to carry on. But let's just no, pretend, no way. Let's pretend he yeah. did. Doesn't crash. I don't think so. I, a, he didn't have the fitness to chase stage wins. And B, that would have made no sense. Um, but then again, we, we saw UAE do it. And they had riders fighting for the podium. And they had a guy finish on the podium and they had Mark Soler up the road every day going for stage wins. So I guess it's possible. I wouldn't recommend it, but Lefebvre's, he's a little bit of like a, it's like stupid, like a fox where you're just like, God, what is this guy saying? What is this guy doing? It makes no sense. Um, But he often is right. He's probably right more often than he's wrong. I don't know. I, I, at some point, you'd think that's insane, but I would take him at his word for that. I think he probably would have had Philippe chasing stage wins, as unorthodox as that is. Yeah, I guess I've been thinking about that quite a bit because I know we're going to talk about Remco. What can Remco potentially do in the future as well as where will Remco do that? And just thinking about Lefebvre's mentality, quick step, the team that they built, the roster of talent that they have, and what would happen or what might they need to do if they actually had ambitions of winning the Tour de France? And what do you do with a writer with Remco's level of ability? So what's your read on this, Spencer? Where are we headed? Before we get into that, this is like this is going to be a big topic. <laughs> Does Remco, is he just going to win every race from now on? Like, what, what's your read on this? It seems inevitable. He seems inevitable. He just won 
San Sebastian easily, like easily won the Vuelta, Vuelta, not easily, but pretty, pretty in a pretty dominant fashion. And then he wins worlds almost unchallenged. Like does this, does this keep rolling? Is he the new superstar? Does Wout have to find another line of work? Like what goes on here? How's your, what's your read on that? I feel like, in pro cycling, we've had this same conversation about four or five different riders in the last three years, um, maybe a, a bit longer, but starting with Egon Bernal, I mean, as you'll re recall, once he won the tour, all commentators could talk about was how the sky's the limit. This guy is, he can win an unlimited number of tours. He's, he's going to beat the record. He can do anything. Then we had Tade. We have all of these, you know, now we have Jonas. So I think it's very difficult at this point to think about any one writer dominating the sport completely. I think that people get on hot streaks and they have the potential to step into the arena and to win another grand tour, to win a classic, a monument, whatever the case may be. But in cycling 2.0, I think the level of talent is so high among that handful of riders who seemingly can win at will that I, I just can't see Remco, you know, being the one ring to rule them all. What do you think? I think, the, yeah, I mean, yes, essentially agree with you. I think these hot streaks we see are really related to weight. I mean, Remco, it looks different. Like he physically looks different than he did at Liège um, earlier this year. I think if you can just get the right mix of anyone can train hard. Like we could all, we could just go to the South of Spain and go to Matthew Vanderpool's training hotel and train nine hours a day. Um, would we be as fast as him? No, because we're not putting out um, the Watts per kilos. They are, we'd all have to, and then starve ourselves while also keeping our power really high, which is very difficult to do. I think you see these dominant runs when a rider like cracks that code or ju they're just like sitting in that perfect weight range but they're also fit. They're strong. I don't think it's totally sustainable. Like even someone like Pogacar, who never physically appears any different, you know, you see him in January and he looks like the same weight that he is at the tour. I think there are slight weight fluctuations that you won't even really visibly tell. And it does affect your performance at this level. Like you're just, the margins are so thin. So I think Remco's on just like a great run with his weight and his power. I also think it's why Tom Dumoulin retired so early because he was in the same zone and then got sick of starving himself and was not quite as good. And you saw him, he could, he could like kind of not fake it, but put on a good performance at the Olympic time trial, but he, he couldn't replicate his climate performances in road races. And so he's just like, screw it. I'm not going to starve myself like Wiggins um, kind of beautifully uh, articulated on the Lance Armstrong podcast earlier this year where you go on a six, seven hour ride, don't eat anything, have some fizzy water, go to bed. That's like not a fun life. So I think Remco maybe not falls back down to earth, but reverts to the mean a little bit next year. And we, you know, we don't see him just like trouncing to both a Giro tour, Paris-Roubaix tour Flanders win. I think it's going to be a little bit more difficult for him next year. Indeed. So Patrick Lefebvre, strange man. Um, like a, an eccentric genius, perhaps you could say. Um, he's built a lot of success with this quick step team. They win. They like lead the world tour at wins almost every year. But this is their first, this Welta was their first 
Grand Tour win. They're not a great stage racing team. Um, they're, they're good at other things, one day races and stage hunting, because they don't spend resources and time and talent chasing stage race wins. Rimco Evenepoel seems to be a pretty serious stage racer. As you say, if he's going to stay on the team, they're going to have to build some sort of support around him for the tour. Novalta, a lot of things fell their way that aren't going to be replicated in future Grand Tours. They're going to have to have a stronger team. That takes a lot of money. Lefevre runs this thing on a bit of a shoestring budget. Uh, you can do that with one-day races and stage hunting because you just pay people low salaries with high bonuses for wins. But Sepp Kuz, for example, would never take that deal because he's never going to win a lot. So you have to pay him a really high base salary. Same thing with Wout Poles. These guys command really high base salaries because they're never going to activate their bonus uh, clauses in their contracts. Does he want to spend that money? I don't know. And they really would have to shift the focus of the team away from the away from the classics. Almost more of like a Yumbo where, yes, they're good in classics. Yes, they can win them, but it's not their core identity. And it seems like you'd have to get rid of some of their, you have these like Swiss Army Knives classic riders who are so good, like Florian Seneschal, Yves Lampard. Like some of those guys would have to get pushed out for to make room for mountain domestiques i'm not convinced that's what he wants to do and then we got this news that Ineos is trying to buy rimco evanopol from him what was your my initial reaction to this was this is fantastic we have a super domestique for garrett thomas next year at the tour um what was your reaction andrew uh my reaction was i thought the language that was used was was pretty interesting, really unsurprising. I mean, I think we even talked about this the last time that we got together and did a podcast, Spencer, that it seems like an inevitability that if Remco wants to continue his career as a Grand Tour winner, specifically go after the Tour de France, that he's going to need to be on another team for all the reasons that you just specified. To do that, it's going to have to be one of the richest teams in the sport. Enios you know, kind of in grand tour purgatory. I think this is a really interesting situation. If Remco goes there, I, I do wonder about, he does seem to have an adamantine level of self-confidence and ego, which I think is great for a writer doing the things that he's doing in the sport with the aspirations that he seems to have. There is going to be an increased level of pressure within Belgium. And I wonder, is he going to potentially go down like a Tom Boone route? And I'm curious if you know anything about off the bike lifestyle factors. Does he have a propensity to enjoy house music or raves like Tom Boone, for example? Um, and will he thrive if he does go to Enios? Cause it's a very different system. It's not the Wolfpack over at quick step. And that's the system that Remco grew up in from the earliest days of his riding career he's been nurtured for better or worse in patrick lefebvre's system so can he thrive in what seems like a more clinical and less warm environment over there at enios and then what happens to this constellation of grand tour could be's has been's maybe one day will be that enios currently has on its roster these are good questions. I think Rimco, the, to your first concern, I actually think he would fit in well, just personally on that team. Um, 
big personality, a lot of confidence. I I think he could just make the switch. It's like I don't I don't think he cares if he's racing for Poppy Lefevre or Ineos, who's going to throw a ton of money at him. And, and in some ways, it would be better for him personally because he's out of that fishbowl that you know he's still going to be a big star in Belgium, but. To be the biggest star in Belgium on the Belgian biggest Belgian team and to be the most important rider on that team, that could get a little exhausting. I actually don't like that dynamic. I think Ineos is a better fit for him. But to your second point, Ineos, I think this is undercovered. They just chew up potential Grand Tour winners. Like if you're a young rider and you want to win Grand Tours, you shouldn't go there because I'm just looking at their lineup for next year. You have Tymon Arnsman, Egan Bernal. Let's set him aside for a second because of the crash. Danny Martinez, Teo Gegenhardt, Pavel Sivakov, Timon Ar- Arnsman, who's a fantastic GC, potential GC rider, Carlos Rodriguez, who's incredible, and Luke Plapp, who they want to turn into a GC rider as well. Like those guys, obviously, Remco would take precedence over all of them because he just won the Volta. Um, but let's just take Teo for an example. Teo won the Giro and has not really had a chance to lead the team at another Grand Tour. Like what happens if Remco goes to that team, flops at the tour next year? Is he then working for Carlos? They they have like too many riders of the same. They they never make the hard decisions to prioritize and consolidate behind single talents to take those guys to the next level. Danny Martinez is a great example. So talented, has never really been developed as a GC racer. Um, I would be shocked if he turns into a like a GC contender at this point. Um, and you could say the same thing about Pavel Sivakov. I mean, they, they, he won the Dauphiné. It maybe looked like he was going to be a GC rider, but just they they take guys who could be really, really big stars elsewhere and just turn them into domestiques. They're fantastic at that. What they're not great at is actually producing tour winners. Um, I think Chris Froome, let's just, he was a bit of an accident. They tried to get rid of him. They tried to sell him to uh, to Radio Shack the year that he almost won the Vuelta. And then we're like, oh, this guy's pretty good. We should keep him around. But Wiggins came over from Garmin as a fully baked rider. And Bernal is the only young rider they've ever bought who then turns into a Tour de France winner. Jim Radcliffe, the owner, the guy who finances the team, is really sick of not winning. They haven't won a, they're not going to win a Grand Tour this year. They're for, they're for the first time since 2014. Radcliffe wants to win the Tour. And he looks at this roster, as we both agree on has a fantastic amount of talent they don't have an obvious winner for the tour next year and i think that's the sticking point for them they want to win the tour de france in 2023 they don't have the talent to do it they look at rimco as an easy fix they're going to bring him in fantastic uh but we saw them to try to do this last year with tade they offered him rumored to offer him 18 million euros a year to come over he doesn't do it it reeks of a little bit of desperation. I mean, how did you, like, I, this did not seem like Enios. you would think any, like if you go back to pre Enios team sky, like they should be developing writers within find the next Remco Evan, a Don't just keep trying to buy writers who just won the last grand tour and pay them a bunch of money. It doesn't really seem like it's going to work because there's no guarantee that Remco Evenepoel from age 23 to 26 isn't just getting usurped by Juan Ayuso, who's 19 year old, 19 years old. Like, are you just constantly getting disrupted by the next young big thing because they never developed the ability to identify 18 and 19 year old talents and bring them in? They just have 
one Italian agent who signs writers like Bernal and says, hey, you want to buy this contract out? That sounds great. Like they don't actually have a talent identification program. And I think it's all kind of starting to fall apart because of that. One of the lingering questions that I had coming out of the 2022 Tour de France was what does the future of Tom Pidcock look like? And given what's happening right now with Ineos trying to buy Remco, I have to think that we now have an answer about what Pidcock's future looks like. I mean, he clearly has the potential to win across a variety of disciplines. He seemed like a rider who could develop into a multi-week stage race, grand tour, overall contender. But I think this signals that that's not the direction that Pidcock wants to take his career and that Enios isn't going to cultivate him in that way. So I think that that's, it's not really being discussed, but I think that's an interesting subplot here. So Pidcock's probably going to continue to focus on one day races, stage wins, potentially in grand tours. And then I don't know if he'll continue to do mountain biking and cyclocross going forward, but that's, that's an interesting subplot to me. And I agree with you, Spencer. They just have this history of, uh, ruining good talent. Like once they're in that system. So I'm, you're probably right. He probably could just port right over not Richie port right over, but the verb <laughs> port, he could port right over it. And then he could Richie port and then have that experience of not really reaching the full, um, full potential that he has, which I think he, well, let's explore that. Actually. Do you think he has the potential to win the tour de France? Rimco having a pull. Yes. Oh yes. Oh yeah. I think if the tour, if the tour happened this week, he would win it. Um, he's the best stage racer in the world right now. Um, yes, he has the potential to do it. It's actually perfect because he's so good at time trialing. And all he has to do is defend on climbs. If he stays on quick step, they're going to be fantastic on the flats. He's never going to lose time in the crosswinds. Um, but yeah, I think he, he definitely could win the tour. Is he going to do it would be another question. You bring up a good point with Pidcock. He... I have to imagine he got a text the day, the morning this story came out that his team manager was pursuing Evanipol. Um, you seen this yet? Question mark. Uh, I bet is what someone sent to him. Maybe Pitcock wants to do grand tours, but the team is correctly deduced that you, you cannot have an off-road schedule. Like apparently he's racing mountain bikes next year. So, Oh, if, he is. Yeah. If okay. you're doing that, you can't realistically be chasing uh, win overall wins and grand tours. So either he, the team or both recognize that that's just not going to work and they need to find another option. Yeah. Evan, I guess in theory, he's like a good plug and play for this team, but they just don't have a good track record of success. And then it's committing like emphasize against all these other riders inside the team. But I don't know. You can imagine they, they have kind of been seen. They're like a leaderless team. They just kind of ride around like a headless chicken, like as if, if they have the strongest rider on the race and they're setting him up for the win, but they don't actually have that rider. So Evanipol probably could win the tour next year if he made the switch to Ineos. I want to ask you this question. What would it take? Like, what would Ineos have to throw at him and his team to get him out of his contract? Yeah, a lot of speculation about this going down on Twitter. And uh, Lantern Rouge posted about this and kind of did some 
back of napkin math about uh, what he perceived as not just the price tag to buy out the contract, but what's the opportunity cost. So what would quick step be for going in terms of exposure for their sponsors, which that's, that's a smart way to look at it. I don't think that anybody buying out a contract in pro cycling is ever actually going to pay that full price tag for the, the true value over the course of an entire contract. So the speculation was, oh, this would take 40 or 50 million euros to buy this contract out. Maybe that's right. My gut is that's not right. And uh, I don't think Lefebvre wants to build, uh, to, to dismantle the incredibly successful team that Quickstep has built that's been dominant or a force to be reckoned with in the classics, taking lots of stage wins. And you know, now with the Vuelta under their belt, I don't think they want to reform the team to be competitive at the tour. I think that they would like that infusion of cash to focus on what they're already great at. And they would see this tour de France project as a distraction. So I think it's going to, it's going to take a lot, but it's not going to take 50 million euros. I don't think, I think Remco's gone. What do you think? I mean, I thought 50, I thought it was crazy at first, but you have to imagine that, are the yeah as Patrick A.K. Lantern Rouge was saying, yes, I guess if we tally up the exposure, it's worth a lot of money. Um, it would take a massive transfer, but I think maybe what they're forgetting there, what people maybe aren't bringing into the calculation, is if if Evanpole leaves, Quickstep probably still wins the Tour of Flanders or Roubaix. Like that's a lot of exposure. They're still going to get stage wins at the Tour. It's not like the team goes to zero if Evanpole leaves. What's the extra publicity worth the sponsors? I, the only thing is I have to imagine it's a lot easier for him to ask sponsors for more money and to find new sponsors if he has a potential tour winner on the squad. And, you know, what's that worth to him? Is it worth 30 million euros, 20 million euros? And then you have to remember he doesn't have to pay Evanapol. I think that's where this could get tricky. Um, let's just imagine... You're Lefebvre and you're saying, well, why not both? Why not just keep chasing uh, classics and also win the tour with Evanapol? But I just don't, I just have my classics guys support him. I don't sign any new riders. We don't let the cost balloon here. I have to imagine that he's, that's what he's going to try to do. Um, but he still would then have to pay Evanapol a lot of money, like a lot of money every year. So Enios buying him out of his contract means you don't no longer have to pay that money. That's like if you get a $20 million check, plus you don't have to pay Evanapol 5 million euros a year, which, which is what he's going to be worth, 5 to 6 million euros a year. That's not what he's currently making. But even though he has a long-term contract, he can just come back to Quick Step and say, I'm just going to take a 10 million, like what is Ineos going to offer him? It could be 10 million euros a year. Like I'm just going to take that and take me to court and we'll settle for some number of uh, millions of euros for me breaking my contract, which is very easy to do in Europe because the legal system is so much more biased towards employees versus employers. It's not like Evan Apol can just keep him against his will. So you think he's gone? I, I, I guess I'm I, I'm getting to that point. I thought this was crazy at first, but it's not all downside for for Lefebvre. No, I think there's a ton of upside for him, and I think it's 
I think it's going to happen. Did you hear this crazy story where Bora tried to buy Quickstep last year? Because that's that's the workaround. Like, well, why pay fifty million for a writer when I can just buy the whole team and then I get his contract? Because if Quickstep can't adequately fund the team, it has to shut down and then you're selling the team for pennies on the dollars. Like if you can't afford to fund the team, your assets are now worthless. Uh, Bora tried to come in and buy the team to get access to Evanapol, and it, it didn't take. Uh, Lefebvre was able to get funding together to like stave off that takeover, but that that would be like the off-the-wall option. Like, well, if you're not going to sell them to us, we're just going to go to your – like they have a team owner. Lefebvre owns parts of the team, but they have a – like a financial backer and an owner, and we're going to offer him $50 million for the team. So Ineos has levers to pull here to get Evanable from him, even if he doesn't want to sell him. Okay. I didn't realize you could do – so this is kind of like a leverage buyout of, of another team? Yeah. I mean, you can't like do it against – someone has to be willing, right, a willing right. seller. But I forget his name. He's like a Czech billionaire. He could just be like, you know, I'm sick of – because these teams, same thing with uh, like Garmin, Slipstream, back before EF bought them, they had a guy, Doug Ellis, who wrote them a check every year to cover the difference between the budget and what the sponsors were giving them. So like Lefebvre hasn't been getting enough money from sponsors to fund the team. So this check billionaire has to write him an amount of money to cover that delta. And I assume has been like, well, I just want ownership in the team. Like he's just been building up equity in the team in lieu of payment back for that money. So he could just say like, I'm sick of covering this difference. I'm just going to sell the team because I now own 70% of it. And I'm going to get a nice fat check that covers all the losses I've taken over the years. And I don't have to do this anymore. So that would be the how that would work. Yeah. And just what you shared right there, the fact that Lefebvre right now is not covering the entirety of their financial needs from sponsors and that they more or less have to have a patron who just cuts them a check. And given the fact that Remco is already one of, if not the most famous sporting personalities in Belgium, I'm just thinking about two sponsors. Would it really be that much more valuable if Remco were an actual tour de France winner? Would it cause this radical shift in the perception of value of the team? Or is there a certain cap for the value that sponsors perceive from a professional cycling team or a personality in this sport versus F1 or football or something else in Europe. So I, I don't know if there's like an unlimited potential for a sponsor's perception of the value of having, of what they get out of having a team, no matter what the achievements are. Yeah, you're pulling on the right strings here. I, and I want to clarify, it could be different for 2023. I know they've brought in Sudal from Ladu Sudal. They've stolen that sponsor who probably is like, yeah, we want to be associated with Renko Evanapol. And so maybe he is covering the entire funding, funding gap in 2023. I know they were really struggling in 2020 and 2021 and even this year to do that. I think that's what Sudal is supposed to be fixing. But yeah, you could say like, well, having Evanapol on our team makes it, the value is 250 million euros a year. But if you're Quickstep or Sudal, you're Belgian companies, do you even really care about the tour? It's like, okay, awesome. You won the tour, but every one of our customers is Belgian and they just care about the tour Flanders. So maybe just try to win that and it's not worth spending extra money. And then you're also going up against 
let's say you bring in an, an international company like Oracle, but they could say, well, I can just sponsor, I can be the jersey sponsor of Manchester City for 50 million pounds a year. Why wouldn't I just do that? Like, why would I give you 100 million euros a year? You start to compete against other sponsorship opportunities. And once you get upside down on that proposition, that's your hard cap. You, you can't, and especially with like, you can't ask more than what it would cost someone to buy like a professional soccer franchise. So yeah, I think some of these values of Evanable is going to drive this much sponsor ROI aren't quite taking that into account that they're there just is like a, a major discrepancy in the perception of value versus the actual value these teams can derive from having a star rider. One thing that I would do if I were Remco or if I were the team that owned his contract is I would build a private set of roads for Remco to d go do his time trial training. Because if we look at recent Tour de France winners in the past decade and what has prevented them from coming back for title defenses. We know that <laughs> the, the number one problem is that they are practicing riding on their time trial bikes and something horrific happens. And then they're then out of the tour. I might even say, Hey, Remco, we just like you off your time trial bike for the time being. And we're going to come up with the solution for you to, to train uh, for this discipline a bit more safely. Aren't you describing a velodrome? I, I don't, I guess potentially a velodrome. I'm not sure if that's actually replicating what these riders need to do on a time trial bike and their need to control it in the wind. So I, I think that there is some specificity they have to get from training in an environment more like the environment in which they will actually compete. But you could replicate parts of that on a, in a velodrome. Yeah. I was, you, I was thinking about this the last few days is, there's a lot of talk about like rider safety in races and then something terrible happens like to Egan Bernal when he crashed training and everyone's kind of shocked. Like, why is he even out on the roads? And then we're often blind to just the inherent risks that professional cyclists take by training. Like that's the real danger in your profession is being out on roads, open roads for so much time. Um, I guess there's just nothing. You just kind of have to, and, and, take that risk on and I guess try to live in the safest road situation you can. But there's, it's, there's actually, it's shockingly little. It's like unsatisfying what you can actually do to protect someone from especially training on a time trial bike on the open road because roads are dangerous. Yeah. I know there was a certain American writer who competed at the world tour level who was had a lot of success and that he would, I mean, he would like have a suburban out with him that he would follow every time that he trained. And I don't know if other writers at the world tour level at the very highest level, if that's something that they, they do. I know that, um, but if that suburban stops, you're just going to run right into the back of it because you're not but looking it, for right on your bike. Right, right. But if it's, if it's your person driving that vehicle, you're connected to them via radio, potentially. I'm just thinking about things a professional writer could do to, um, mitigate some of the risks that they face out on the road because you're right it's definitely the most hazardous part of the profession not these courses that the uci puts them on littered with road furniture and protruding barrier feet austin's very different now than it used to be but as a kid i often did wonder like where is lance armstrong training like how is he 
safe out on these Texas roads, but I, I doubt he was that safe. Actually, looking back, it's kind no, of he would he trained in L.A. all the time, uh, L.A. as in Los Angeles all the time in the early to mid two thousands when I lived out there, and he'd always he'd have a vehicle that he followed. I guess in the U.S. you can get away with it. But like in Europe, as you mentioned, the road furniture, like a lot of times cars are just going so much slower than like, yeah, it's, it's yeah, much I don't know. harder to do in Europe. Well, I mean, even in the, uh, I mean, it's also the, made a lot of money, like a lot more than even Rimco Evanapol would be able to make. So the cost for him is like a little less significant than it would be for a normal professional. Sure. I'm thinking about, uh, Carapaz as well, though. He has that motorcycle, former motorcycle cop that is out with him on every ride when he's home. That, yeah, that makes a little bit more sense. Do you know why he's with him? Is it just for like road issues or is it like a personal, like personal protection service? It, I mean, it could be, could be both. I'm not entirely sure, but I know at least part of it is road safety. Yeah, that, that actually is kind of makes more sense i think i don't know yeah i would be careful though if i was training on a time trial bike and you're a gc contender it's it's a precarious situation on open roads i do also know that after evanapol's crash like a lot of uh has come out about just how dangerous this uh colombian roads are like it's just not a super safe situation they have a lot of congestion even just taking bikes out of the scenario Right. Like a lot of connections, congestion, very busy roads. And so training there can be more precarious than like, let's say like Majorca, which is almost just built specifically for cyclists or um, the coastal, I don't know the coast, but like where Alicante is in Spain tends to be a lot more safe because it's built almost specifically for cyclists. Yeah, Spencer, I wanted to jump back to worlds for a second because I had another observation. I wanted to get your take on this. Another thing that jumped out to me during the world's road race was the performance of Quentin Nermans. And he had a super strong ride. I think he definitely was one of the factors in Remco's eventual victory, just like a great support ride from him. And he's primarily known as a cyclocross rider has had some tremendous results as a cyclocross pro. He's also been very active on the road throughout his career. And I saw that he's now, he was on um, Intermarche. It looks like he's going to be going to Alpecin for the next three years. He's 27. So it's, you know, he's in cycling 2.0. He's like about to leave the sport, but I think he has a lot of good years ahead of him. But if, as you look at the current crop of pro cyclocross riders, do you think there's anybody else in that discipline who potentially could cross over and have a lot of success at the world tour level that's maybe untapped talent? I mean, there's definitely a lot of guys. I guess that's the advantage of Wanti or I guess Intermarche is their name now and Alpeson. They are like maybe the most old school Belgian team. So they have like a straight pipeline to all these budding cross talents like Quentin Hermans who had heard of this guy and then he gets second do you remember Liege best on Liege this year he got second behind Evanapol and then think of the advantage of that for Evanapol to have the guy who finished second behind you at Liege being your domestique at Worlds uh, that's like a pretty unique situation so I I mean yeah I in short yes um, 
and Intermarche and Alpeson will find those riders. I mean, there's think of uh, wasn't Tim Merlier? He was just a cross guy, and Alpeson was like, "Hey, you should come be a sprinter on the road." And now he's one of the highest paid sprinters in the sport. So, um, I think that's the big advantage those two two teams have is they just are right on the ground in Belgium and they can identify really talented cross riders who maybe were unknown to the rest of the world before they were uh, on on the road. It kind of goes back to what we're saying about Ineos. It's exactly what Ineos isn't doing. Um, you have to find the talent before anyone else knows about the talent and bring them over to your team. And yeah, they, I would be, I would be looking pretty hard. I would, I probably have an employee that's just at every Belgian cross race looking for talent to bring onto the road. Yeah. And Keegan Swenson, of course, the U.S. gravel mountain bike rider, primarily a gravel rider. Now we talked about him a bit on our world's preview and he had an Instagram post following the race. Pretty much just like we discussed, he found uh, just holding position and maneuvering in the group to be really difficult at world. So that was his first ever ride and a road race at the world tour level. And I am curious to see if he does end up crossing over to the road, but I kind of went down the way we thought it might. I did think that he might flex a bit, but uh, he did run into the struggles that we anticipated he would. It's also a great, I'm trying to pull up his exact finishing position. It was a great ride from him. I think. Yeah, for sure. It's a kind of a funny, cause he gets 73rd. He's minutes behind. He, he's six and a half minutes behind Evan like an American audience is going to look at that and be like, ah, not notable, like move on. But I think he was the second American. Yeah. He's the second American finisher finished ahead of Magnus Sheffield. Who's on Ineos and a really good writer. That's a, that's a really strong result to get in. What is your real first professional road race? And that course was hard. I mean, think how hard it was at the beginning. Can you imagine holding position on the it's like the run along the coast even before they get to mount kira and then just how hard mount kira was positioning was so important on that climb and the descent was really tricky the fact that he didn't wasn't just immediately off the back was was really impressive to me i think he could be a he could be a very good professional road cyclist if he wants to and that's probably the key thing like does he really want to go essentially learn a new discipline at this point yeah, does he want to become the next John Tomac? I my guess is the answer is probably not. I mean, he's having a great run on gravel. I am curious whether we're going to see Sagan come over to gravel in the next twelve months, or if he's going to keep chipping away. I guess I don't know. Up. He got seventh this race. He's in that group, which is super. It's time cool. to time to hang it up and head to Lawrence. <laughs> I I think he's going to be a I was right there with you. I thought he's going to hang it up and just be a gravel racer. But after this performance, I mean, he's at least got to give 2023, like a full go. I mean, he could think that if things would have worked out different, differently in that race, like he had an outside shot of winning. So if he could just pop off one more big win, I think that would be huge for him. And then like a tour de France stage one is definitely not outside the question. So I think he'll keep, he'll keep going at it for a few more years. Another observation that I had about Sagan, the world championships in Remco, as we know, Sagan did participate in the unbound gravel 100 last year. I don't recall if he did the year prior. And then we had Remco, I believe in fall of 2021 did the Belgian waffle ride in Lawrence, Kansas. Do we think that participation in a gravel event 
in the United States is some kind of predictor of someone's uh, potential world champion status? Absolutely not. But if I was, I I think everyone should be trying to copy this. <laughs> it's like just people should be grasping for straws at this point. Like, how do I beat Remco? Okay, what did Remco do? All right, he went to Lawrence and rode really slow in the Belgium awful ride. I'm going to do that and see if it works. Um, I think it's time to pull out all the stops to try to replicate Remco's success. It is kind of un. It is crazy to think about. I was just in Lawrence yesterday and to think about 12 months ago, exactly, Remco Evenepoel was here doing a race and then now flash forward, he's the hottest rider in pro cycling, just won a Volta, just won a world championships. Quite a difference 12 months made for him there. So that that is surreal. I don't think he'll be coming back for any more gravel races in the near future. I think his his star is maybe a little bit too big for that. Now well, he got what we call the sunflower and bottleneck bump from his time in Lawrence, I think. You know, Spencer, on the topic of gravel, we also do have the Gravel World Championships coming up on October 8th and 9th. I don't know if we want to do a full separate episode on this since we've we've been going for a while now. But this is something we definitely need to talk about. I just wanted to highlight that I spent a fair amount of time on Google today and I cannot find a list of writers who will be participating <laughs> I'm in so this. I'm so glad event. you said this because I couldn't either. It's <laughs> like, what a clown show. I was like, am I what an a- idiot? How can I not find? <laughs> no, they have a very prominent photo of an Astana writer on the front of the website which is in Italian. I did use Google Translate. The event is being held in Italy, so that you know that makes sense, but it, it um, didn't auto-populate in English. There's no list of participants. It looks like there are two separate routes, but it, it's actually maybe three. So this is a very confusing website. There's also information about how to participate. Spencer and I were thinking about coming out of retirement and tackling the world championships. But in spite of what's here on the, uh, wow, this, this is just a very confusing website. I, I, we, I felt very confused by the entire thing. It's kind of a shame because you can see the outlines of an, of an amazing event. Like if this was put on by the people who do SBT gravel, the steamboat gravel race, or the Belgian waffle ride people, I bet this would be pretty cool. I mean, that's an amazing, amazingly beautiful region of Italy. Great time of year to ride there. I bet the roads are awesome. I, I think gravel is newer to Italy, but I think that like if you I, I, like Italy is this great cycling culture, but a lot of the feeling sometimes I'm just like these roads. I'm freaked out. Like I don't want to be on this road right now. There's no shoulders. It's a very densely populated country. So if if you could kind of open up the, the gravel, I'm sure they have so many amazing gravel roads and like side roads, uh, just like a great experience for, for local Italians, for people that are riding there. And this would have been such a fun event, but it's like the, the UCI World Championships. So I guess it's invitation only or you have to qualify for it. I felt like it was just a huge missed opportunity. Like they're over-professionalizing what was meant to be kind of a participant driven event that's fun to go to, but it doesn't really feel that fun. And it's hard to tell what's going on. 
I think it's very in line with other world championship events that the UCI organizes. I also think I, I love gravel racing. I've been working on this essay about the spirit of gravel that's going to be coming out pretty soon. I'm really thrilled to share it with the world. And, you know, I don't think it's any surprise that we now have seen a professionalization of the sport throughout the past probably four years. It's become more and more professional. And I feel like we're at this moment in time, similar to when Norba racing kind of fell into the the background and World Cup racing became the thing in cross-country mountain biking. And we saw the rise of European dominance and, you know, now global dominance. We have riders from all over the world. Um, Nino Schurter, of, of course, is probably the most successful cross-country mountain biker at this point with nine world championships, but we see talent coming out of Brazil and all over the world in that discipline. And we did have Christopher Blevins, short track world champion 2021, but the U S is really not much of a player at the the world cup level in mountain biking anymore. And I think that this is just what's going to happen with gravel racing over time. I think these events in the United States will be the marquee events Emporia as improbable as it is, is it is the world epicenter of gravel cycling and will continue to be it's to gravel racing. What Kona is to Ironman. I don't see that changing. It is very odd that the UCI has kind of like a random location, not really tied to the heritage in history of the sport. And it's inevitable. This is just what happens over time with everything. Like you have a band you like, you see them at the outhouse in Lawrence and then they uh, end up on the radio and they're playing the Roxy in LA and then they're everywhere. Yeah. I, yeah, I guess there is a, that that's the logical thing. I, I can't, I do hope that uh, is, could this just be a flop? Like think of like steamboat gravel, like Valtteri Botas is there. Who's, probably more has more Instagram followers than any cyclist in the world. You know, it's like super famous as F1 driver. Like he's not going to be at the UCI gravel world championships. Like I, I almost am like still hoping the rebel forces can outshine this somewhat contrived event put on by a bunch of bureaucrats from Switzerland. So I'm holding out hope that the, the U S real like grassroots gravel races can continue to fight back against the UCI encroachment. But I do think, as you say, the the U.S. riders might get pushed out as the deeper talent pool in Europe starts to go to gravel. Yeah, as part of my research for the essay I wrote about the spirit of gravel, I was looking into, oh, I, I would call it the literature on this topic over the past couple of years. So taking a look at the social media posts of past winners of major events like Unbound, SBT Gravel. Belgian Waffle Ride and others, as well as op-ed pieces that writers have published in Cycling Tips, Velo News, other places. The pattern that if you go look at these articles, and they're all going to be linked in this piece that I've been working on, if if you look at the body of work on this topic, it's typically someone who was at the apex of the sport when there was a lower level of these are incredibly talented writers, they're professional level athletes within a certain scope and then over time as you have in gravel for example you now have world tour level talent coming over from europe to compete in these events they're not always winning they're still american riders winning 
But in aggregate, the competition level was rising. And some of the people who are more lifestyle pros, I mean, I guess privateer is the term that's used, but a lot of them have fully supported programs from their sponsors. They can't win anymore because the level of competition is too high. And then there tends to be a lot of finger pointing and emotional appeals related to this nebulous concept of the collective rules that have developed over time from participants, which that's really what the spirit of gravel is. But it's usually the people who are no longer winning the races who are invoking the spirit of gravel. And I think gravel events are super cool. And I would agree they have a very unique vibe and it's in everyone's favor to continue to preserve that vibe. And part of what's cool is that when you go participate in these events and I've been doing this series here in Maine where I live called the Maine Gravel Series. And they're awesome events. And everybody who participates, whether they're just going out there and finishing or they're riding to finish as quickly as possible and racing, you kind of feel like, hey, by me being here and participating in this, it's part of what's creating the overall feeling that makes this cool. And it would be sad if these events lost that. But at the pointy end of the sport with professionals, make no mistake, if you're a professional athlete and there's a start line and a finish line and you're showing up, if if you're doing anything other than whatever has to happen within the boundaries of the rules to win, then I'm not sure what you're doing there. That's your job. Yeah. No, you hit the nail on the head. I think this was, there was like a minor controversy about this at the steamboat gravel this year where someone attacked in a feed zone or they were perceived to be but there's no rules against attacking in feed zones as you're saying you're taking advantage of everything in your legal quiver to win the race which is what you should be doing so yeah i think i mean think of unbound this year i don't want to throw shade at this guy um fantastic rider to win unbound 200 but he was kind of an anonymous Dutch ex mid-level pro road racer. And he just comes out and just slaps all of these, as you as you call them, like lifestyle professionals who are privateering. And then it's just showing like the level of even a mid-tier continental pro in Europe is so much higher than like the top, top, like quote unquote, like gravel racers. So it's just going to get harder and harder for them to compete in, in these big events. I mean, I, I'm curious to see who wins this UCI Gravel World Championships, but my gut is telling us you've never heard of them. Have you watched any of the events? No, I don't. I, no, I, I watched like moments of Unbound. I found them to be difficult to to spectate. But if we're complaining about uh, UCI World Road Race Championships footage, the, the gravel is, is not there currently. They're they're very difficult to spectate. I don't remember if it was on Flow, GCN, Eurosport, which of the nine different streaming things we have to have to watch professional cycling. One of them had one of the UCI, I don't even know what they're called, or they called Gravel World Cups, whatever the UCI gravel races are. A few of those were streamed. And I have to say, it was awesome. <laughs> they were really cool races. It was just like watching a normal road race but it was on gravel. The gravel was more similar to Strada Bianca than what you would see in the storied uh, Flint Hills of Kansas um, on the unbound course. So it wasn't quite as rough and rugged, but 
indisputably, I was like, wow, this is a really com visually compelling, interesting racing experience to watch. I didn't know who most of the riders were. They all appeared to, I, there were Astana riders there. There were a number of riders from pro uh, world tour trade teams, it seemed like, but it was cool. Like I was like, okay, people can hate on this, but it's, it's fun to watch. Yeah. I mean, it, a, I don't think there's any gravel quite as gnarly as the foothills of Kansas. I don't know what is going on. I, it's like the hills are just kind of lightly being ground up. And then that's the gravel road. Like these gravel chunks are massive elsewhere in the world. Yeah. It's, it's much smoother gravel. It's more of like dirt racing, like a smooth dirt with a few rocks type surface. Um, and I have no doubt. I mean, think of how cool Strada Bianchi is. If Strada Bianchi was just longer and more gravel, it would, it would be awesome. So I'm not shocked that the races themselves are cool. If they could package it in the right way, it, I would. I would definitely watch it. I, I'd be in. I'm just a little. I'm a little discouraged by how hard it's been to like figure out who's racing, when is the race, how do I watch it, why is it the same day as Kona and Lombardia? Who was in charge of the scheduling? Yeah, I'd like to get excited and to do that. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to know who's actually going to be competing in the event and. I I guess I could go Google this. The information is probably somewhere. I don't even know who from the United States is going. For example, is Keegan Swenson going? I don't know. I don't think so because I think, as you say, I did see a list of these people. I don't remember who it was. But as you said, the purse for the Lifetime Fitness overall series is so important for him financially that I don't think he can sacrifice traveling around i think he kind of has to focus in on the last leg of that which is in october oh, i believe right i think it's in bentonville yep right because yep. that's where they started the tour and or the, whatever the series and it'll end there as well like i heard two guys on a group ride recently talking about like like bentonville saying like what what what's going on here why do they care about bentonville and then i realized they're doing the the final leg of lifetime there it's going to be their big breakthrough. It's the equivalent of winning the powder eights in Aspen. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think the participant is, uh, like a higher up at specialized. So, but maybe, yeah, maybe he'll be leaving that position to pursue uh, full-time gravel racing. Or maybe they are a privateer professional racer and high level employee at specialized of which there seem to be a number. Yes. And that is, if you can get that work, take it. That is the life. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I'll let you go, Andrew. We're, go we're going a little long here, but we have a kind of an interesting, I wouldn't, if you're, unless you're really into pro cycling, don't try to watch any of these races, but we'll tell you about them on our next podcast next week. But we have these, a series of like, what I think are super interesting Italian one day races. They're all kind of like mini Lombardias. And then we have Lombardia next weekend, not this coming weekend. So We'll probably try to get a podcast out next week where we talk about what's going on in those warm-up races and then talk about the looming Lombardia. Well, until then, Spencer, good luck putting together your gravel program for 2023, getting all those sponsors aligned for your privateer experience. So I can go to World Champs. That's, that's the goal. Maybe getting a gravel bike would be the first step, but we'll, we'll look into it. Sounds good. All right, bye. Bye.